We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. What's the point of opening up about a brook and a river? Let's talk about it today. Is brook like a creek and crick? Is there a different way to say it? A crick and crack? <laughs> Welcome to the Codex Cantina, where I am Una. And I am Ocean Crypto. Oh, yeah, see what I did there? <laughs> <laughs> Here on the Codex Cantina, we take some of the most important literature that has influenced even today's writers. If you're down for taking these stories and just having a conversational approach to discussing them, hit that subscribe button and join us on the journey. And we want to thank Leslie Smith over at The Nerdy Narrative for being our patron and being our first person to suggest us to read a short story. Magnolia Flowers was her suggestion for the month of August, so thank you. Now, Zora Neale Hurston, a name that was almost lost in time thanks to the work of Alice Walker, Valerie Boyd, and some other authors who have resurfaced her works and put her back into the forefront of American literature. And thank goodness, because her writing is absolutely incredible. One of the greatest writers to have ever lived. 100% agree. One of the greatest writers of all time. And I think that is, is because of the style of writing that she's able to incorporate all of these almost fantastic ideas that aren't quite fantasy or sci-fi. For example, in this story, we have a little bit of the anthropomorphizing, which is really cool that we have a brook and a river that normally you would not associate being like living and having feelings like we do as humans. And she takes this to the next level in this kind of pseudo love story. And it's absolutely amazing. And it's going to touch on those elements of shadism or colorism that we're going to talk about today and how there's this unconquerable love and how love is blind sometimes. I think she takes definitely more of the joyful or positive look on it, but at the same time, keeping a very realistic touch on reality as we talk about book Brooks that talk and have feelings. <laughs> and then on the, and with that, you know, you're talking about these kind of fantastical elements. She's able to sneak in some of the very, very, you know, poignant ideas of religion and belief systems and kind of how should we think about how we interact with other individuals. Just She is an incredible writer. We cannot say enough positive about her. So what we do on this channel is we do a quick plot recap, make sure we're all on the same page, and then we're going to jump into some discussion analysis and really break down what the story means to us. So for plot, the story opens up like we were talking about with this river that is strong and powerful, and it drinks in the moonlight and thrashes in its bed. And along comes the young brook who accidentally wakes up this powerful river, right? The brook begs for the river to tell it its story of lovers. And the river tells it its story to humor the brook, a story from 40 years ago. So long ago, a lighter-skinned man held dark-skinned men in bondage. Some of the slaves didn't weep, but fled at night, some to Native American land. From the banks of Savannah, Bentley, a man who was a slave, essentially, came and built a house and became wealthy. Bentley marries Swiftier, a local indigenous woman. Together they have a daughter, and they name her Magnolia Flower. 
Soon, hate, stride, destruction, and war happens across the land. After the black man is now free to come and go as he pleases, Bentley hates anything resembling his previous oppressors, and wants everyone either very black or Cherokee and becomes physically abusive. Bentley builds a school for Magnolia so that she can learn. And Magnolia soon falls in love with John, a lighter-skinned black man. Bentley thinks John isn't black enough. John refuses to leave, so Bentley decides to hang him. Bentley plans to marry Magnolia to Crazy Joe and make John watch before he hangs him. John is locked in a room, and Magnolia is locked in a parlor. However, she is released by Ham, who thinks that her father is being wicked. But he doesn't have the key to free John. Magnolia leaves to get the key from her father's pocket as he sleeps. She retrieves the key and flees to the palms in the boat with John. The next day, Bentley sees that the prisoners have fled, and he threatens Swift, Deer, and Ham, as he knows that they were the ones to have let them get away. In the present, the brook listens to the river story, and an old couple comes sauntering down to the edge of the water, and it's Magnolia and John. And they say, love is wonderful, isn't it, dear? <laughs> End plot. Aww. So touching. It's such a oh, it's such a good ending. You know, it's we don't get those too often. I feel like of the happy ending. <laughs> it makes can, me feel warm and fuzzy. I don't like it. <laughs> you know, and I can promise you, there's got to be some people out there that might have shed a little bit of tear at that ending. It's a very powerful story. It's whimsical. It's deep. It's funny. It's everything you could want in a short story. And Zora just delivers every single time she picks up the pen. And we made a joke how we said, hey, is there a bad Zora story out there? It's funny because this one person who's a huge fan of Zora, she's like, actually, I think this one you reviewed was as bad as it gets. (laughs) Oh, okay. Good to know. Good to know. So it's only going up from here, right? Because this one was fantastic. Agreed. So it starts out very magical, right? But with a frame narrative, what's the point of the book and river part telling the story about oppression, telling the story about forbidden love, telling the story about them fleeing from the violence to just live in harmony. How do those two relate? I think with the river and the brook, they're both water. And so they're the same, but they're different, where they have similar experiences, but different experiences. And we kind of see that with the men in this story, where they're similar, but they're also different based on their race sort of, but not really. For some of them, it's different. For some of them, it's not. So they have this kind of relationship that is um, tenuous because of their similarities. It's worth pointing out that the river specifically calls out that it does not care about some of the man-made constructs, right? When they're talking about how Bentley became wealthy, how, I don't know, I'm a river. I don't care about these man-made constructs like, like wealth. Those aren't relevant. To your point, I think arguably you could say, okay, this this structural racism that's happening I don't care because that's not something that's important. That's a man-made concern that they create to create this this disparity of power, if you will. So two very similar things having very different experiences in life. And here's River and Water who are very similar, but at the same time, they're having these different experiences too might be one way to take it. Yeah, and I think with the, the river in this case, the river is, I think, literally more fast flowing and more moving and it has more energy and power and you kind of see that in the story if if he's represented by bentley right who's kind of the more aggressive yeah for sure i think bentley's obviously the more aggressive one but i also like the idea that are men really all that different and we have these quotes rivers take no notice of such things 
we sweep men, stones, metal, all, all to the sea. All are as grass, all must to the sea in the end. Which to me is very reminiscent of the 319 Bible quote in terms of, for you were made from dust and to dust you shall return. And she kind of rejected religion a little bit, or at least, you know, when you read her biography by Valerie Boyd, which does pull on her autobiographical information as well, you could see that she definitely had a pull away, but Zora was an anthropologist, right? She studied people and she knew that religion was a part of people. So we'll see it in here. We'll see it in the, her short story, Sweat, or Their Eyes Were Watching God. She, Even as she has these beliefs, she knows that this is important to, to men, to people, and she'll inject these things into the story. And you have quotes like, steel against steel, which is very reminiscent of tin sharpens tin. Again, another Bible quote. But what's the point of these things? I think the, the idea is she's trying to get this different view about how how do we come together, I think, as, as human beings to overlook perhaps some of these elements? And something that's focused pretty hard on the story isn't necessarily, I mean, obviously we have the war, the oppression from the white man, that's not escapable. But we also have a pecking order even within those that have, you know, that are black, right? Between Bentley and John, we have a clear dynamic where John isn't considered black enough. He's a light-skinned black man, Right. And we've talked about this before, where you see in the different racial divides within the races, and that some people aren't accepted as many as others, and you have this division because some of their ancestors might have been white, no fault to their own, but they you know, have these ideals of what they want their race to be moving forward, and it isn't simply a, a man-made construct like the things of racism and wealth, but it's this idea of that your skin color defines who you are because it has been told to them for so long that it is who you are. And we have a term for that, colorism or shadism, which is prejudice or discrimination against individuals with a dark skin tone, typically among people of the same ethnic or racial group, right? So you're not as black as me or you're too white-skinned. And I think it even creeps into our language. I'm not an anthropologist, or is obviously way more uh, knowledgeable in that sort of things. But even in the way our language informs us, you have you know, a, a white person and a black person coming together, right? What's, what's that in-between called? Right. And in at least in American culture, if you had any black in you, you were considered black. Right. You were a darker white man. You were a light skinned black man. Like even our language frames, I guess, you know, the, the culture and the race that way. And I don't know if there's another reason for it, but it makes me kind of question, hmm, we really do have this this bias even at the core of our language that as soon as you become you know mixed, you're black, but you're different levels of black. And I think that's kind of telling and interesting to me how Bentley in this story is wanting to you know murder and hang him for the sole purpose of having his daughter marry the right colored man in the story. I think we could probably take this a little bit from what... Uh... Zora studied maybe in history. If you look back at the colonization of the Americas and how these different divides were created of being European born or uh, being European born or born in America of European parents and what that meant is your status, that's carried over into both South America, Central America, and then into North America, our country. 
And with that, there are certain terminologies that they'll use that we no longer use because they're considered racist to describe somebody. And it's a very harsh term for somebody that is of mixed heritage. And it definitely is something that is no longer used, thankfully, in most regards. But yeah, very interesting how we, even on our language, make it something about race. And it's, it's so subtle that we really don't realize it in everyday speech. So let's look at what Zora does with that story, that concept, right? So she takes Magnolia Flower, who is a mix of a black man and Cherokee, right? And she falls in love with John, a lighter-skinned black man. And it's it's Magnolia's love for John, and, and assumably John, John's love for her, that what we get is one of those crossing boundaries, the colorblind, love is blind concept, where even though society is going to the point of potentially murdering one of them, they will cross that line because that's how important their love for each other has become. And I think that's what makes the ending so powerful because you can end the story right there like, oh, that's really cute that she freed him and they escaped. But then to say that for 40 years, because remember the frame narrative of the brook and the river are jumping back 40 years to tell the story. We see that they've loved each other all along, and they still think of it as this great and wonderful gift. And that, to me, this is showing how humans, love is something that will drive people. And while we have this backdrop and this oppression and this story of racism, you have love conquering and pushing through. And I think it's a little, you know, cliche to say, but love does conquer a lot of things in our lives. And sometimes it's the love of money. Sometimes it's the love of wealth. Here we have true relationship love, and I think that's what makes it so beautiful the way that Zora has kind of crafted this story to come together. I don't know if this quote fits in there perfectly, but it was, quote, half for love, half for fear, Ham obeyed. And I think it's almost that idea of, you know, hate and love are so closely linked, and we kind of see that interwoven throughout this story between, uh, you know, Magnolia and Bentley and John and oh it's so powerful and she's just a powerful writer it, it's it's gorgeous I love it well and a lot of people in, in today's story will tell you that you know racism in America was about power it was about land ownership and it was fear of losing that to, to your quotes point as and their love of power that drove them to do these things of hate these actions of hate and what we talk about with Zora Neale Hurston, and in her biography, Valerie Boyd talks about this, like in Their Eyes Were Watching God, that slavery taught or gave a preference of violence to a lot of African-American slaves. That violence became a form of, this is how I show control and strength. They had no power in the fields with white men, right? The only place they had power was to go home and lord it over the women. The black women were the lowest on their totem pole, Right. And here we have Bentley, where as soon as he's free, all he knows is this violence, per se. His oppressors, he can't stand them. So what does he do to control his daughter or control the lighter-skinned man? He uses violence. He uses uh, he becomes abusive with swift deer, they say at one point, or kind of allude to. And this is also very sad because this kind of reinforces that theory that racism did a lot more harm than just, you know, 
making them work the the fields, there's intergenerational trauma. There's people passing down violence and taking it out on others that don't deserve it. And that's what's so sad is the way that Zora is able to craft that into the story as well. A couple of quick little snippets from the story. There's a piece that says the new rope hung ominously from the arm of the giant oak in the yard. She throws these little nuggets of history of kind of what happened and oppressed to these people. I think that very, very strategically and there's another one in there where they're they're talking about how angry he got and she uses the word gray rage that's a very interesting term to use gray you know kind of that mixing of all the colors to describe because normally rage always associated with red gray rage that just that really makes you think stop and realize how important this is to some people And Zora Neale Hurston, always her stories revolve around that concept of life and death and love and where can love thrive and where does love come from? And I think she tackles it in a way that's just so beautiful. I think her, when you look at her anthropology background, I think that just really gave her a leg up on being able to look at all these different cultures. And that was part of her study too, was to prove some of the similarities that different uh, ethnicities had. And I think that's just very interesting the way that she kind of is able to pull out in the story, the river and the brook, right? Both forms of water, both having different views and outlooks and experiences in life. And then using a framed narrative story with a history of racism of this time and slavery of this man coming into a post-reconstruction era and see some of the harm that it causes. I think it's very, very strong story. Guys, we're going to leave a Zora Neale Hurston playlist down below. We love covering her stories, and we'd love to hear from you on this down below. What did you think about this story? And if you didn't have any questions or thoughts and you just wanted to kind of leave uh, you know, a comment for us, feel free to leave a little picture of water, a brook, or, or something there. Uh, Crypto, let's move into our wrap-up and ratings here. Very, very subjective rating, obviously, as always. Uh, I'm going to give this one a nine, though. I think that it has a love story, so that's great. I think we're we're romantics deep at heart, as you know, tough as we come off sometimes here at the Codex Cantina. <laughs> uh, but I, I love the, the the symbology and the way that she's able to take a love story and make it so unique, but also twist in the history. It doesn't get much better than her. Um, she, every time we read one of her stories, I feel like she goes up a notch, reaching that ever goal of being my favorite author of all time. Um, I think I think Flannery O'Connor is in trouble someday for some of these stories that we we keep uh, coming across from Hurston. Uh, I just I can't give enough praise to her. This is something that would be beautifully done as a teaching tool inside of a classroom. You get so much out of it. Nine out of ten, man, nails it again. Just better and better every time. Yeah, I think I think my emoji would be the the face crying because because it was so sad and heartbreaking at the end, like heartbreaking and and moving, like it was powerful. I think so. Definitely, I'll go with a nine point five out of ten for me. Very strong. Another showing from Zora Neale Hurston that that just blows our socks off. So guys. If you are into literature discussions and learning about amazing stories like this or talking about these stories, hit that subscribe button. Join us as we post videos every Monday and Thursday. Una out. Peace.